Fragments of Fright Volume 3 is here. Go to Amazon and search for Fragments of Fright or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. <laughs> If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. <laughs> Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. Missing the Father In the late 1970s, my 17-year-old daughter Missy was babysitting for the Andersons, a well-to-do couple in the high end of town. She babysat for them regularly. The Andersons had identical twin daughters. Missy loved them like they were her own, and always looked forward to babysitting for them. Missy was a dream daughter, the perfect child. She was a straight-A honor student, a member of the student council, and the head cheerleader. Whenever she went out at night, she was always home well before her curfew. Everyone loved her. It was a cool autumn Saturday night. The Andersons had a company party they were attending, and Missy was babysitting for the twins. It was just a typical Saturday night. There wasn't any reason to be concerned. Missy showed up at the Andersons' house at 6 o'clock p.m. The Andersons told her they'd be home by midnight. Being an overprotective parent, I would often call Missy at the Andersons' house just to make sure she was okay. She was always amused when I called. She thought it was funny that I checked in on her. She would giggle as she went on about how safe the neighborhood was and how we didn't have anything to worry about. When I called at 7 o'clock p.m. that night to make sure everything was okay, she insisted that things were fine and dandy. Those were her exact words. I called her again a little after 9 o'clock p.m. She answered the phone with a chuckle and said, Everything is fine, Dad. She mentioned that she had just tucked the twins into bed. Then I remember hearing three sharp thuds. My impression was that it was someone knocking on the door. Upon hearing the knocks, Missy said, I have to go, and hung up the phone. I called back at 9.30 p.m. and got a busy signal. I called again at 9.45 p.m. and again at 10 o'clock p.m. I continued to receive a busy signal. Normally, I wouldn't have thought anything about it. She was likely gabbing on the phone with her boyfriend, Greg. He was the captain of the football team and seemed like a fine young man. Although I remember the previous day overhearing Missy telling one of her friends that she thought Greg was cheating on her. When I called again at 10.15 and the phone was still busy, I decided to drive over to make sure she was okay. The Andersons' house was approximately 20 minutes from our home. I pulled into the driveway at 10.37. 
When I walked up to the house, the hairs on the back of my neck bristled as I noticed the front door was slightly ajar. I immediately pushed open the door and started calling out for Missy. My fears rose quickly from the absence of a response. I hurried into the living room and found a chair knocked over, and the oriental rug in the living room crumpled up. There was also a large knife lying on the floor. I called the police and rushed up the stairs to the twins' room. They were both fine and fast asleep in their bed. When the police arrived, they searched the house. Besides confirming the obvious signs of a struggle, they found a minuscule amount of blood on the corner of the marble coffee table. Later, it was confirmed that the blood belonged to Missy. The only other clue they had was one of the neighbors in the back stating that they looked out of their bedroom window at approximately 9.45 p.m. and saw a shadowy figure exiting out of the back door of the house. The obvious suspect was Missy's boyfriend, Greg Rollins. One of Missy's friends came forward to divulge that Missy suspected Greg was cheating on her. I surmise that Greg was the one I heard knocking on the door slightly after nine. Missy must have broken up with him after she let him in, which sent him into a rage. He then abducted Missy, murdered her, and hid her body. Greg was the only person the police had on their radar, but they quickly ruled him out as a suspect when he presented a rock-solid alibi. I talked to Missy slightly after 9 o'clock. I arrived at the house at 10.37. The confrontation had to have taken place within that time frame. The movie theater box office manager confirmed that Greg bought a ticket for a movie at 8.30. The movie started at 8.45. A girl working the concession counter at the movie theater is on record saying Greg bought popcorn at 9.30. An usher said he spoke to Greg as he exited the theater at the movie's conclusion. That was 10.35. He was seen before, during, and after the movie, which was good enough for the police. At first, it was good enough for me as well, but months later, after we accepted the fact that we would never see Missy alive again, we held a memorial service. I bumped into Greg there. It was something about his shifty eyes that gave him away. I have no way to prove it, but there is no doubt in my mind that Greg Rollins is responsible for the death of my daughter. Missing the Boyfriend My name is Greg Rollins. I was Missy's boyfriend. Missy was not the prim and proper all-American girl that everybody made her out to be. She was conning everyone. She was conning me too, but then I found out the truth. Missy had a dark side. It was a bit cliche for the captain of the football team to start dating the head cheerleader, but Missy seemed so nice. Like me, she was on the honor roll. She was on the student council, too. 
I thought she was very sweet and asked her out on a date. Our first couple of dates went well, but then things started to change. She had extreme mood swings. She'd be happy and cheerful one day, and then the next she'd be angry and irritable. I also noticed that she was exceptionally twitchy. She was often bouncing her legs when she sat down and fidgeting with her fingers. She just couldn't stay still for two seconds. There were multiple nights when I noticed her pupil seemed unnaturally large as if dilated. Then she started having nosebleeds. She claimed it was due to a nose spray she was taking, but I suspected otherwise. One night I followed her. She caught a bus to a seedy part of town. I watched as she approached a large tattooed man on a street corner. He was more than twice her age and was wearing a white tank top. When they disappeared into a darkened alley, I crept up and spied on them. I observed Missy perform a sexual act on the man. He then handed her a cellophane bag full of white powder. That was it for me. I didn't want to have anything to do with Missy anymore. In hindsight, I should have broken up with her immediately. It was a huge mistake not to. But I knew she would erupt and make a big deal out of it, so I avoided it. And I avoided her. One day after school, she confronted me. She accused me of having eyes for another cheerleader named Kim. It's true, I did find Kim attractive, and Kim seemed really nice. She was sweet, cute, cheerful, pleasant, all the things Missy pretended to be. A week later, Missy lashed out at me and screamed at the top of her lungs as she accused me of having an affair with Kim. She said she'd kill me if she found out I was cheating on her. Missy's behavior was getting scary. In all honesty, I wanted to go out with Kim, but I wasn't cheating on Missy with her. I would never ask Kim out until I was broken up with Missy. On the night in question, Missy called me up and told me to come over when she put the brats to bed. That's what she referred to the Andersons' twin daughters as, the brats. I didn't want to go, but decided to take that opportunity to break up with her. The Andersons had a strict rule that Missy was never to have boys over while she was babysitting, and Missy's father checked on her all the time. That didn't stop Missy from inviting me over when she was babysitting. She just waited until she put the twins to bed before she would let me in. Missy was paranoid that the Andersons or her father would find out that I was over there while she was babysitting and she was scared to death of her goody-two-shoes reputation being shattered, so she created a fail-safe. Before I ever visited her while she was babysitting, I'd go to the movies and buy a ticket. I'd then go into the movie theater and sneak out through a window in the bathroom. Missy was adamant that I always keep that ticket stub. Then if she were ever confronted about having me over, I could produce the ticket stub as evidence that I was not there. I always thought such a measure was extreme, but she insisted, so I always agreed to do it. I did it that night, too. I bought a ticket for the 8.45 show. Once the movie started, I went to the bathroom and climbed out of the window. I arrived at the Anderson's house a little after nine and knocked on the door. Missy answered and was all smiles. She was rubbing all over me and telling me how sorry she was that she accused me of cheating on her. 
She then told me she had a surprise for me. She had me sit down in a chair and cover my eyes. I was nervous about telling her I was breaking up with her. I knew it would get ugly when I did, so I played along with her little surprise game. It was my way of procrastinating. I sat in the chair and covered my eyes for a good 30 seconds or so before I got impatient and opened them. How fortunate I was there was a mirror hanging over the fireplace in front of me. When I opened my eyes I could see the reflection of Missy with a demented scowl on her face running up behind me with a knife raised high in the air. I jumped out of the chair as she rushed me. I managed to grab her wrist with one hand and a handful of her sweater with the other. She screamed at me as she tried to stab me. You son of a bitch! I told you I'd kill you if you ever cheated on me! I was able to push her back, ripping her sweater in the process. She looked down at her torn garment and smiled. That's right, Greggy. Rip my clothes. Slap me around. It will help to make it look like self-defense. She then started punching herself in the face, bruising herself in the process. I could see where this was going. If she were able to kill me, she'd have no problem making it look like I was the aggressor. She charged me again, missing my throat with the blade of the knife by centimeters. I was able to grab hold of her again and I shoved her hard. She tripped over the oriental rug on the floor that had been messed up during the struggle and she fell awkwardly hitting her head on the marble coffee table. She was completely motionless on the ground with her eyes open. She was dead and everyone was going to think I killed her. I probably should have just called the police and told the truth, but I panicked, thinking I would be the prime suspect. I had to hide her body, and I needed an alibi. That's when it dawned on me. Thanks to Missy, I already had the start of an alibi. The movie ticket. I just needed to take my alibi to the next level. I stealthily snuck out of the house, hurried back to the movie theater, climbed back in through the window, and stepped up to the concession counter. I ordered a tub of popcorn. I needed to do a couple things to make sure the concession girl remembered me, so I complimented her on her smile and then spilled my popcorn all over the place. I apologized profusely and she laughed, explaining that this happened often. After that, I went into the bathroom, climbed through the window, and went back to the Anderson's house. I left everything in disarray and opened the front door a crack. That would make it look like an intruder. I made sure all of the Anderson's house lights were off. I picked up Missy, carried her out the back door, and threw a small tree line around the back of the neighborhood houses. Just a block away was a junkyard. I knew they didn't have any kind of security there because a lot of my friends used to take their girlfriends there to make out. I hid her body in the trunk of an old, rusty car that I knew they'd be demolishing in the next day or so. From there, I hurried back to the movie theater, snuck in just as the movie was letting out, and exited with the crowd. As I left, I made a point to go up to one of the ushers and told him how much I thought the movie sucked. I figured that would help him to remember me. The buzz about Missy's disappearance was through the roof, and I became the number one suspect. But thankfully, my alibi held up. I was able to get on with my life. Nobody suspects me of anything, 
except for Missy's father. Anytime I run into him, he stares at me in an unnerving, knowingly way. Grim Reaper. Halloween was my favorite night of the year. I absolutely loved trick-or-treating. It was always such a joy dressing up in a fun costume and being surrounded by people who were doing the same. And let's face the hard, cold facts. I had a sweet tooth. I loved candy. Saltwater taffy was my favorite. They say trick-or-treating is for kids, but whoever made up that rule is an idiot. So there I was, an 18-year-old girl dressed up as a cat, slogging through the neighborhood, filling up a pillowcase with sugary delight. I managed to get a couple of my girlfriends to go with me. They weren't as enthusiastic as I was, but they humored me. My friend Tammy grabbed her little sister's witch hat and a black robe, while Susan powdered her face white, put dark circles under her eyes, and wore a white nightgown. Our little town was alive with people in costumes. Lots of zombies, ghosts, superheroes, among many others. My favorites were a little boy dressed as Elvis, a teenage girl who did a stunning Elvira, and a boy dressed as Maverick from Top Gun. I saw several other gals sporting cat costumes too, but none were as cute as my getup. We had been trick-or-treating for about two hours when Tammy started complaining that her feet were hurting. I told her to toughen up and we continued our Halloween trek. There was a big house on the corner of Fifth and Vine that belonged to an old widow that everyone called Miss Betsy. She was tall, lean, and had an unusually long nose. Lots of people thought she was a real witch. But witch or not, I knew that every year she gave out handfuls of salt water taffy, so that was always my primary target on Halloween night. She did not disappoint. She held out a gigantic bowl filled with that sweet, salty goodness, and believe me, I grabbed as much as I could. When we left the house, Susan started moaning about how much she hated saltwater taffy, which was music to my ears. We quickly made a trade, all of my Kit Kats for all of her saltwater taffy. This was the biggest saltwater taffy score of my young life. It was an hour later when Susan started pestering me about how tired she was and Tammy doubled down on how sore her feet were. They were trying to talk me out of continuing on with the festivities. They wanted to stop and go home. They wanted to quit. I explained that we had at least three more blocks to go before I would even consider calling it a night. That backfired on me. The thought of three more blocks of trick-or-treating made them both officially throw in the towel. They tried to talk me into stopping, but I was having none of it. I told them if they wanted to quit, they could, but that I was going to continue on with or without them. 
they were polite in their goodbyes and implored me to be careful and stay in heavily populated areas. And then they left and I was all alone. I was both disappointed and excited. Disappointed that I wouldn't have my friends there with me to share in my fun, but excited that they wouldn't be slowing me down and that I could stay out as late as I wanted without having to listen to any more bitching and moaning. Before I started the solo portion of my journey, I decided to plop down next to an old oak tree and munch on some of that coveted salt water taffy. I had downed three pieces when I noticed a man in a grim reaper costume standing at the end of the sidewalk. He was tall. His black robe was thick and must have had a few sequins sewed in because it was occasionally sparkling in the light. His scythe looked authentic. Most Grim Reaper costumes were accompanied by a plastic scythe that ruined the costume. Not this one. This scythe was real. It looked old and rusty. I found myself hoping he had dulled it down properly. The thickness of the hood shielded the majority of the Grim Reaper's face, but the moonlight was casting enough of a glow that I could make out the subtle appearance of the skull mask under it and the Grim Reaper appeared to be staring at me. I should have been more frightened than I was, but I was a little mesmerized by the effectiveness of his costume. I actually waved to him and shouted out, Great costume! But he didn't respond. He just stared at me. I shrugged his non-responsiveness off and began my lone excursion through the neighborhood. I was on fire. I felt like I was gliding I was moving so fast up and down the streets of our town. I found myself contemplating trick-or-treating alone from here on out. I was so much more productive. I was really having a blast, except every now and then, I'd spot the man in the Grim Reaper outfit. Every time I saw him, he appeared to be staring at me. And he never had anyone with him. He was alone and I didn't notice a trick-or-treating bag on his person. Was he following me? As enamored as I was with his magnificent costume, he was starting to give me the willies. Had the street not been more crowded with people, I might not have felt as safe and could have possibly been downright frightened, but there was safety in numbers. Even if this guy was some sicko, he wouldn't dare try something with so many people around. As I kept trick-or-treating, more and more houses were turning off their lights and my fellow candy seekers were diminishing in numbers. By the time 11 o'clock rolled around, I was the only one still out and about. All of the houses had shut their lights off and the streets had become dark and lonely. I guess my night had come to an end. I let out a disappointed breath and started my long walk home. After a block or so, I slightly startled when I heard the distant sound of footsteps behind me. I quickly turned around and let out an audible gasp when I saw the Grim Reaper standing just a few houses down from me. He was on the sidewalk. Again, he was staring at me. This wasn't fun anymore. I was scared. I picked up my pace and hurried down the sidewalk. I happened to be on one of the back roads of the neighborhood. There were less houses, less streetlights, and less cars driving by. I felt alone, but I wasn't. I turned and saw the Grim Reaper behind me, and he was closer. 
no more than 30 feet away. That's when I started running. I felt like if I could make it to Vine Street, I'd be okay. Vine was one of the main streets in town. Even late at night, one never had to wait more than a minute for a car to drive by. If I could get there, I'd feel safe. I had about two blocks to go when I looked back over my shoulder again. The Grim Reaper was still there. He was closer. What did he want? Oh, how I hoped this was just some guy having fun and not a genuine threat. I was now running at my top speed and was only one block away from Vine. I was moving fast. I'd be at Vine Street in just a matter of seconds. I was afraid to look back anymore and fear that the man in the Grim Reaper outfit would be standing right behind me, raising his scythe into the air, but I couldn't help it. I looked back. Nothing. He was gone. Maybe he realized that he was scaring me more than he meant to and stopped. Or maybe I just outran him. That heavy robe of his couldn't have been the best outfit for speed. I expelled a breath of relief as I turned back around and saw the sign for Vine Street in front of me. I made it. That's exactly what I was thinking as the Grim Reaper stepped out from behind a tree and stood gawking at me. He was close enough now that I could see his face clearly. It didn't look like skull makeup or a skull mask at all. It looked like a genuine skull. I wanted to reach out and touch it to see what it was made of. Was it really a skull? But before I could make a move, the Grim Reaper held out his arm and pointed his bony finger at something in the distance. I squinted, and as I realized what he was pointing at, I screamed. It was me. I was lying by the base of an old oak tree. What was this? I stepped closer and observed my lifeless eyes staring out at nothing and my hands wrapped around my own neck. My mouth was open and I could see massive wads of saltwater taffy in the back of my throat. And finally it all made sense. I had choked to death on my favorite candy on my favorite night of the year. I suppose there are worse ways to die. Most of my books are now available as audiobooks. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash audiobooks. At the end of the hallway. I'm a nurse working in a very old four-story hospital. For a long time it was just a normal common hospital, but that's not the case anymore. Nowadays it's used for doctor's offices. The building was built in the 1940s. The first and second floors are original to the building. The third and fourth floors are a little more modern, having been added on in the late 1980s. The third and fourth floors are the active areas where the doctor's offices are. I assist on both floors. The second floor has a few administrative offices on it, but mostly it's just an ancient, empty floor. 
and the first floor is only used for storage. Most of the doctor's appointments were wrapped up by 5 p.m., and the building was normally completely empty by 6. It was a Wednesday. All of the doctors and their workers had left for the day, except for the doctor I was assisting whose office was on the third floor. He had gotten called away for a short stretch on an emergency, but then returned and refused to cancel any of his appointments. He stayed until he saw every patient. It was near 7 o'clock when we finished that night. Including the doctor, there were four of us still there when we shut off the lights and we all finally left for the night. We all walked to the parking lot at the same time, got into our cars, and left. I was a block away from the old hospital when I realized I didn't have my cell phone with me. I must have left it in my desk drawer. I did that sometimes. I slapped my steering wheel in frustration and turned around. I parked in the nearest parking space and looked up at the darkened structure. It was strange how during the day with the flurry of workers and patients, the time-worn building had a tranquil feel to it. But at night, with all the lights off and no signs of life, it felt so ominous. The hospital building was in a generally nice neighborhood, but still, as a petite woman, I didn't feel comfortable walking from my car to the building alone, so I sprinted to the entrance, punched in the code, and shut the door behind me. I'd make a point to look out the window for a few minutes to make sure there was nobody hanging around outside before I exited the building. But first things first, I had to get my phone. At that time of night, the lights in the building switched to motion activated, so as I approached the hallway, they were supposed to flick on, but they didn't. I jumped up and down, waving my arms like a lunatic, hoping to activate the sensors so some lights would turn on, but my childish antics proved fruitless. Damn. I was covered with goosebumps as I slowly trekked down the long hallway, guided only by the red glow of periodic exit lights. When I finally reached the elevator, I pressed the call button, and the doors immediately slid open, casting a bright light upon me. This was comforting. I stepped inside and I rapidly pressed the third floor button until the elevator door shut behind me. The elevator began zooming up toward my designated floor when all of a sudden, the lights began to flicker and the elevator let loose with a deep, mechanical groan. I was jostled around as the elevator's speed shifted to a crawl before finally coming to a halt at the second floor. The doors sprang open and I hurried off the faltering elevator. I was just thankful that the doors opened and I had the opportunity to get off. The last thing I needed was to get stuck in that elevator overnight. Talk about a potential nightmare. Unfortunately, the motion lights on the second floor were not working either. I practically had to feel my way down the hallway as I moved toward the stairwell. There was a dim exit light at the very end of the hallway near the stairwell, casting a faint glimmer of light for me to follow. I stopped in my tracks when I noticed a figure standing in that tiny splash of light at the end of the hallway. It was a person. I couldn't make them out well, but my impression was that it was an old, bald man in a hospital gown. 
He stood slightly hunched over. The light was so dim I couldn't tell if his back was to me or if he was facing me. There were a few offices on the second floor. They were mostly used for part-time data entry operators. They were usually gone for the day by 2 p.m. Oh, how I hoped it was one of them working odd hours. Hello? The fact that this person did not respond meant it was most likely not an office worker. Who is that? It was then that the figure quickly hobbled to the right, out of my sight. Who was that creepy person in the nightgown? What were they doing there? This was no longer a hospital. There shouldn't have been any patients wandering around in hospital gowns. I was thoroughly frightened and in a bit of a quandary. There was no way I was getting back on that rickety elevator and my only other option was the stairwell which was directly to the left of where the old man had been standing. Hello, who's down there? Again, no answer, no sound, nothing. I made the decision to walk to the stairwell. I moved cautiously, quietly. I stepped softly as to not make any sound. I didn't want to alert the elderly figure that I was coming. Step by step, inch by inch, I moved closer to the stairwell and within a couple of minutes found myself standing in the pool of light where the old man in the patient's gown had been standing. To the left was the stairwell. I was about to race to the door and turn the knob, but couldn't help but turn my head to the right, which was the direction the figure had moved to. To the right was a closet, nothing else, and the door was open. I could see inside. It appeared to be a very small janitor's closet. It was too dark to make out well, but I could see the back wall with a mop and bucket sitting against it. I saw no sign of the old man, unless he was lurking just around the corner out of sight. I turned toward the stairwell door, flung the door open, and took off like a bolt as I raced up the stairs to the third floor. I let out a sigh of relief when the third floor hallway motion lights lit up my path. I ran into the doctor's office, retrieved my phone, and hurried back to the stairwell. Again, there was no way I was going to risk getting stuck in that elevator. I tore down the stairs as fast as I could. As I opened the stairwell door and stepped onto the first floor, I heard a stairwell door slam shut from one of the higher floors as if someone else had just entered the stairwell. There was a moment of silence before I heard a rapid shuffle of feet coming down the stairs. I wasn't waiting around to see who it was. I practically flew out of the building across the parking lot and into my car. I let loose with a cry of relief as my vehicle roared to life. As I drove away, I looked back at the haunting, gloomy hospital building. Standing inside the entrance of the main hospital door, I could see the figure of an old bald man in a hospital gown watching me. And in a flash, he disappeared. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to support the show, 
buy some of my books. I have a bunch of them, and most of them are free with Kindle Unlimited. Don't have Kindle Unlimited? No problem. They're all priced pretty cheap. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. Escaped Lunatic I live alone in a moderately sized log home. My driveway is approximately one mile in length and is canopied by low-hanging shade trees. It makes for a relatively creepy drive to my house. It's literally in the middle of nowhere. My nearest neighbor is three miles away, and that neighbor happens to be a maximum security mental institution for the criminally insane. It's a massive five-story brick-and-stone gothic-style castle-like structure. Even though I've lived in my home for over ten years, and I have to pass by the Lone Oak Institution whenever I go to town, I've never grown accustomed to the way it looms over the road. It always gives me the creeps when I see it. My friends and family say I'm crazy for living so far away from civilization like I do, but for my needs, it's perfect. I'm an extreme introvert, you see, and being that I'm a rather successful romance novelist, I have the freedom to live anywhere I choose. When this log home became available, I jumped at it. I would have preferred something a little smaller for a single 30-something gal like myself, but the house being engulfed within the forest made for less yard work, so that was a nice trade-off. Being an extreme introvert, I don't get lonely. Bug, my bald minskin cat, provides me with enough companionship to keep me happy, and the big plus of having that unnerving, scary mental institution nearby is that it has its own cell tower. This allows me to have access to high-speed internet, a luxury many rural living people don't have. It was a crisp autumn gray day. A constant breeze was stirring up the fallen, colored leaves outside. I had my radio dialed into a local smooth jazz station. I had just gotten a small fire going in the living room and was looking forward to curling up next to it with a good horror novel, but had some housework to finish before I reached that point. I had let my laundry pile up over the past couple of weeks. I was guilty of doing this more often than I'd care to admit. When I put the first load in and hit the start button, Nothing happened. Over the next 30 minutes, I tried every washing machine troubleshooting tip I could think of, but nothing did the trick. In the 10 years I had lived in my home, I never had an issue with any of my appliances. Thus, I never had to go to an appliance repairman, so I was going to have to find a list of some in the area and take a shot in the dark. The first two I tried were booked up for the next week. But the third time was indeed the charm and said they could have a repairman out within an hour. Two hours later, I heard a vehicle pull up into my driveway. I assumed it was the repairman and expected to hear a knock on the door. I waited and waited, but that knock never came, so I walked over to the front window and looked out. There was a white van with the words, Mr. Appliance Repair, stenciled on the side, but there was no sign of the driver. He wasn't in the driver's seat of the vehicle, and I didn't see him on my front porch. Where was he? 
It was at that moment when I saw a man in dirty white coveralls emerging from the back of my house. He was a short man with a medium build. He sported a crew cut. He seemed to be wandering around aimlessly, so I went ahead and opened the front door. I asked him if he was there for my washer. He looked at me curiously for an unusually long time before a spark of recognition registered over his face. Oh, yes ma'am, I'm the repairman. He smiled sheepishly, revealing a missing front tooth. What were you doing behind my house? He took a moment before coming forth with an explanation. I just never been out this way before. It's real pretty. I, I was just looking around. He walked up to me. His eyes kept darting from my eyes to the interior of my house through the open door behind me. I think I even caught him glancing at my rather small breasts. Just as I instinctively folded my arms, I noticed that the man had red stains on the chest of his coveralls. It looked like blood and I couldn't help but to address it. Is that blood? He looked down at the bloody stain in question. Apparently he wasn't aware that it was there and he started stammering. Oh, oh, uh, that, yeah, um... Then I noticed that the knuckles on his right hand were bloody as well. I pointed it out to him. Your hand? What did you do? He looked down and noticed the abrasions on his knuckles covered in a thin layer of blood. He then awkwardly wiped his bloody hand off on his coveralls. Oh yeah, I, I had a flat tire. I scraped my knuckles on the ground when I was changing it. That's all. Well, that's, that's all. He didn't seem confident in his answer and quickly changed the subject. Uh, show your washing machine. Uh, you want me to take a look at that unit? He started to walk into the house. Oh, wait, wait. Don't you need some tools or something? He stopped and looked back at his truck, and I could feel the wheels in his mind churning. Well, I, I like to look at the machine first. That way I know what I'll need. I was rather uncomfortable with this man. He had a jittery uneasiness about him. Something wasn't right, but I still allowed him into my house and showed him where the washing machine was. Once there, he started fumbling around with the cord, plugging it in and out of the wall several times. I got the impression that he had no idea what he was doing. It was at this time that I heard something fall in the other room. My cat, Bug, was always knocking things over. This wasn't unusual, but I wanted to make sure it wasn't anything crucial, so I excused myself and walked into the other room. Turns out it was the plastic trash can in the kitchen that Bug had knocked over. It wasn't the first time. I was about to head back over to the washing machine to see if the repairman had made any progress, but stopped in my tracks when the smooth jazz on the radio was interrupted by a radio announcer. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this special report. A man described as extremely dangerous has escaped from the Lone Oak Mental Institution. The man is said to be 5 feet 10 inches tall and has short cropped hair. He was spotted assaulting a Mr. Appliance Repairman and is believed to have stolen his vehicle, a white work van. If you see anyone fitting that description or driving a Mr. Appliance Repair Van, Please alert authorities immediately. We now return you to your normal broadcast. 
My heart was beating out of my chest and I was on the verge of hyperventilating. I would call the police, but I was afraid the dangerous lunatic in the laundry room would hear me and kill me. I thought it best to just grab my car keys, sneak to my car, and drive away. The problem was my car keys were in my bedroom, and in order to get to my bedroom, I had to pass by the laundry room. I took in a few deep, calming breaths, and carefully, silently moved through the house toward the bedroom. As I approached the laundry room, I was perplexed by the eerie silence coming from in there. I peered into the room as I passed by. I could see the washing machine, but I didn't see the escaped mental patient. Where was he? I didn't even want to think about it. I just wanted to get my keys and get out of there. I kicked it into a higher gear and hurried into my bedroom. I grabbed my keys and rushed back past the laundry room, which was still empty. Where was he? As I passed through the living room, I noticed the fire in the fireplace had burned down to hot red coals. That's when I saw the fireplace poker and grabbed it for protection. I then made my way toward the front door. Just as I reached out for the doorknob, I heard a loud creak from directly behind me. I turned around and screamed. The escaped lunatic was standing stoically in front of me, staring at me. I cried out in a loud whisper, What do you want from me? He looked confused and still kept up his innocent front. I hope you don't mind that I used your bathroom. I wanted to wash that blood off my hand. I slowly stepped backward until I could feel my shoulder blades pressing against the front door. I kept my gaze locked onto the patient they described as extremely dangerous. It dawned on me that perhaps if he didn't realize I was on to him, he wouldn't harm me. I needed to stay calm and play dumb. Just as this thought entered my mind, I noticed his brow crinkle in confusion. His shifty eyes then looked down at the keys in my hand. Are you going somewhere? He took a step forward and I noticed his eyes shift to the fire poker in my other hand. I tried my best, but I couldn't conceal my panic. My eyes were darting around and I started panting. I was standing there with my car keys and a weapon. It was only a matter of seconds before this maniac put two and two together and realized that I knew exactly who he was. So I took the initiative. I let out a battle cry as I raised the fire poker high in the air and swung it with all my might. I hit him directly on the side of the head and sent him sprawling to the floor. The back of his head bounced off of the floor with a sickening thud and he lay still. I slowly approached him. His chest was still. There was a thin trail of blood seeping from his mouth and ears. His eyes were wide open and lifeless. I startled when the radio announcer's voice interrupted the smooth jazz emanating from the other room. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this urgent update. The escaped mental patient from the Lone Oak Mental Institution was apprehended and returned to the facility. That was all I heard. The flood of confusion splashing through my mind drowned out the rest of the announcement. Apprehended? How could the escaped lunatic have been apprehended? He was lying on my floor in front of me dead as a doornail. What was happening? 
I let out an alarmed gasp as my disco-like cell phone ring filled the air. I looked down at the incoming number. It was the Mr. Appliance Repair Center. I was quick to click the answer button. My voice trembled as I spoke. Hello? Is this the woman with the broken washing machine? I nodded and let out a sound that the man took as affirmative. I apologize for Cole being late. He called in to let me know he had a flat tire and had to stop and change it. He asked if I'd call you to let you know he was going to be late, but the damnedest thing happened right after that. Some loony from the mental institution escaped and beat up one of my other repairmen. He stole his truck, too. Luckily, the cops caught the crazy guy and my repairman is going to be just fine. I hope you can understand why I didn't get a chance to call. Cole should get your washing machine fixed in no time. Now, Cole is very shy and a little socially awkward, but don't let that throw you. He's one of the best repairmen and nicest guys you'll ever meet. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. If you like the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. Feel free to leave a nice review, too, if you like. And don't be shy about letting other people know about the show. All of these things help us out a ton, and we appreciate it very much. If you like what you're hearing, please... Consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. Just go to maniacontheloose.com slash support. That's maniacontheloose.com slash support. (laughs) 